kids today. They are lazy, entitled and self-obsessed. Their expensive avocado toast diets and Netflix binging weekends means they can't get on the housing ladder and their snowflakes lacking resilience that older generations have. Or are they? In today's show with best-selling author Bruce Daisley, we look at the evidence behind resilience in children to finally answer, are younger generations truly weaker than older ones? But first, here's a podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Turn on the TV and listen to a debate on children today, and you'll probably hear an argument along these lines. Yorkshire Shepherdess says parents are to blame for creating a generation of useless children. For today's agenda, we're asking why is it that so many of our children are struggling. Can we raise our kids to be resilient and ultimately help them lead happy, fulfilling lives? And welcome back. Today we are talking about raising our children to be resilient. So I think one of the consequences of that is that we do have a reasonable percentage of young people overprotected and overscheduled and under-challenged in some sense. And so they're not very resilient. Today's kids have had it hard, from being branded snowflakes to being accused of prioritising avocados over houses. They're repeatedly called less resilient than older folk. But this isn't a new phenomenon. Almost every generation over the past thousand years have claimed that younger generations aren't as tough as they used to be. So is there any truth in it? Are millennials and Gen Z really weaker and less resilient than boomers or Gen X? To help, I spoke to Bruce Daisley, best-selling author whose latest book, Fortitude, looks at resilience and tries to see if it's really declining. Here's Bruce. So I guess in through the, the course of the book, I posit that re- resilience, fortitude, you know, it's a synonymous term really, but resilience comes from three things. It comes from identity, it comes from community, and it comes from a sense of control a sense of personal agency and um you know the firstly i am a touch cautious about people who say that resilience is declining because i think you know it's it's dangerous every generation has a trend of diminishing the strength of those who came after them and this sort of a long line of this so and in fact you know even if you go to social scientists and you ask them um, you're familiar with the marshmallow. You're familiar with the marshmallow test. This idea that you give little kids a marshmallow now, and if they can wait three minutes, they get two marshmallows. You know, an oft-repeated test. But if you ask social scientists, do you think over the course of time, young kids are better at this now than or worse at this now? And social scientists who should know better say, oh yeah, kids today will be worse at this. In fact, kids have been getting better at this for the last fifty years. Bruce goes into more detail about this in his book. In 2019, researchers at the University of California asked 260 trained developmental psychologists how they thought young people today would fare if they undertook the challenge. 
82% of the trained specialist believed that children would either be less able to resist the temptation than previous generations or would perform much the same. In fact, independent research shows that results in the marshmallow tests have been steadily improving for 50 years. The marshmallow test, the social scientist's golden standard of resilience, is getting easier for kids today. So much for all that about kids having less resilience. So it's an illustration that sometimes we're, we're very happy to diminish the capabilities of the generation below us. But um, so I think there's, there's a mild danger of that. But you, know, you might look at the lived experience of young people and say, well, are there some contributory factors that might be making them more less resilient and one of them is you know young people have less control than ever before in the u.s schools start at like half past seven in the morning quite often um and you know the way you often see the lack of control manifested is in um what one chinese commentator referred to this thing i think it's called banchu singaye and uh and it's called bedtime procrastination and it's where even though you're exhausted because you've had no control during the course of the day you you've calendar has been back to back then you've had to do emails when you've got home when it comes to bedtime you're just like i'm not going to sleep now and so it's like this nighttime sleep procrastination is where you even though you're exhausted you sit on your phone in bed for an hour and a half because you just want some degree of agency some degree of control and young people exhibit that as well young people you know Teenagers today get hours less sleep than they did 15 years ago. So to break this down, young people aren't less resilient. In fact, they perform better on resilience experiments like the marshmallow test. Yet they do have less control. And this is a problem because, as we shared in the previous episode with Bruce, less control can be seriously detrimental. There are a number of studies in Bruce's book which highlight this. Dental patients who were administered puncture wounds in the hard palate at the top of their mouths took 40% longer to heal when they were given that procedure during a stressful exam season than when they did it during their carefree summer break. Cancer victims with a sense of low control have been shown to be more likely to suffer a reoccurrence of the disease or to die from it. It should come as no surprise that the freedom to control one's life is one of the six predictors that the World Happiness Report uses to determine the levels of happiness. That's not all. Dr Derek Johnson and his research team recruited 100 nurses at the Scottish Teaching Hospital. They provided heart rate monitors and observed how well they bore the daily demands of their jobs. Every 90 minutes, the nurses were also prompted to say how they rated their feelings at that particular moment and about the demands that were being placed on them, their sense of control and their feelings of tiredness. Now, as you'd expect, the nurses demonstrated increased fatigue as their shift progresses. And this increase was marginally higher for those working on night shifts than day shifts. But the vital insight that the researchers made was that their tiredness was not related to physical activity. They shared that some individuals showed increased fatigue as physical energy increases, but others did the complete opposite. Some were, you know, sort of vigorized by a bit of physical exercise. The reason behind tiredness, the researchers suggested, is actually related to perceived control over their work and perceived reward associated with that work. If we feel we're in the driving seat as we perform a task, we feel more energised. If we don't, then energy levels drop and we feel exhausted. A lack of control doesn't just affect our performance and our health, it makes us tired. Perhaps more tired than physical activity. 
but there are solutions. Things that we can do to bolster resilience rather than drain it. Here's Bruce sharing another example from a study undertook at the start of the pandemic. Um, the, the other thing that gives us a pointer for it is actually the, the, the woman who's done most work on this is a, is a psychologist called Jean Twenge, who uh, teaches at the University of San Diego. And she's tracked this long data set, this longitudinal data set for about 50 years. The data set's been running for 50 years. She's only been doing it for 20 years. Um, And one of the things she observed in the start of the pandemic, it gives us a real pointer for where resilience lies. So she found, and it was right in the first two months of the pandemic. So you'd like, it's important to rewind the clock when maybe there was, you were watching the evening news briefing every night, or there was a full shelter at home where you weren't even allowed to sit on a park bench. Um, but you might, you might have been having family meals in a way or household meals or cooking for your flatmates in a way that maybe you, you hadn't done in the previous years. And what she discovered is teenagers who were having an evening meal with their families in the first couple of months of the pandemic, their resilience went up, their levels of depression went down, their levels of anxiety went down. So, you know, it's very difficult for us because we might associate the pandemic with depression or with anxiety or isolation but those first couple of months of the pandemic where there was almost like you know we found ourselves against our better judgment on whatsapp groups with neighbors you know this had almost been the, the defining objective of every person who lived in a big city to never build a relationship with neighbors and all of a sudden you're in a whatsapp group with them how the heck did this happen so you've got to remember there was sort of a unique set of of ingredients that first moment but in that first moment that sense of connectedness made the kids less depressed and more resilient now there's the pointer because resilience is a collective strength resilience is when we feel connected to the people around us you know if if we're ever confronted with or, or confounded by the fact that people in ukraine were working office jobs on a friday and then on monday they were learning how to use a rifle and and taking up arms against this invading force and we think i could never do that i'm I'm glad that never happens here it's not because these people are fundamentally different to to you or i it's not that resilience exists as this as this trait that they were born with that we weren't born with is because resilience is a collective strength. It's the, it's the way that we're emboldened by feeling connected and in solidarity with the people around us. And it's just such an important lesson because then anytime any of us is thinking, okay, people at work are feeling less resilient. We shouldn't be sending them on seminars where they're going to learn to learn some coping techniques we should be thinking how how can we meet make people feel more supported more recognized more seen more um, like they've got an affinity with the people around them resilience is a collective strength and i think once you notice it you start you start recognizing it everywhere around you if you want to build a state of resilience one way to do it is to gain more control but another perhaps more effective way is to be part of a group If you're facing hardship, the best thing you can do is to have a strong group of supporters around you. And as you can imagine, Bruce shares lots of evidence to back this up. Here's one bit that I found particularly eye-opening. It reveals that being in a group literally helps us heal from trauma. An aggregated meta-study covering 90,000 individuals across 268 different studies concluded that a lack of social support is twice as good a predictor of PTSD as the level of the severity of the trauma experienced. 
In other words, someone with a strong social group is far less likely to experience the knock-on effects from trauma. And I think we know this. Deep down, we all know that the power of groups is this evolutionary trait. Just look at how quickly we form groups, even in the most fleeting of circumstances. Whether that's a group of people waiting for a bus, complaining how late it is, or a few tables close to you at a restaurant joining in to seeing Happy Birthday. It's not just hyperbole, there's evidence behind groups forming really out of nothing. In experiments where volunteers are initially put into groups to complete random tasks, in the following task, when the groups are completely separated, and who they only just got to know and work with for 15 minutes, they were asked to allocate some cash to other participants. And it turns out the large majority give more money to those who they had already been in groups with. We quickly form groups and we stick to these groups as well. And for good reason, because not being part of a group has some pretty bad side effects. Yeah, I really, I really feel that we're starting to understand the impact of loneliness far more than ever before. So firstly, I, I want to qualify, you can be lonely and live with people, and you can be not lonely and live alone. So, you know, it's not predetermined that people who live alone are lonelier. Um, but people who do live alone wake more times in the night than people who share a bed with someone. And these seem to be sort of atavistic programmed responses where just self-protecting, we, we, we stay slightly more awake through sleep as a, as a means of self-protection, as a, as a means of sort of trying to ensure that nothing untoward happens to us. People who live alone and sleep alone have higher blood pressure. They have higher cortisol levels. Um, as a consequence of all of those things, they have yeah they have higher blood pressure they have like you know the the health outcomes are worse for them so you know loneliness is is um incredibly injurious for us the the probably the iconic book that was written in the u.s and became very well known there uh, about the turn of the millennium was a book called bowling alone by a, a guy called robert putnam and you know i think he says in his revised edition a couple of years ago he says that you know if you're not part of a group but you smoke, I would advise you start grouping before you start quitting. Because being part of a group, feeling connected to other people is one of the, the best things that you can do. There's fascinating evidence behind this that Bruce shares in his book. One group of experts examined 148 studies involving more than 300,000 heart attack patients over a period of time that averaged seven years. They found that the single biggest predictor of heart attack survival was not giving up smoking, that was the second highest factor. No, the biggest factor was stronger social relations. Now, it immediately begs the question two ways for me. Firstly, it made me think, what groups am I part of? And the first thing I started thinking is, wow, I need to be more intentional about sustaining my friendships and you know making sure that we get together with groups that we really feel... I've got like some bond with, some understanding with. And uh, secondly, it sort of begs the question about work. It's like, okay, actually, I think a lot of us are really open-minded. We can see the benefit of working remotely. We can see, you know, the the aspect of, of getting aspects of our job done. But in addition, we possibly need to understand that there's something human about feeling part of something, F- feeling that we're all in this together, feeling that we are connected to the people uh, who, you know, maybe we work with, maybe they're friendship groups outside of work, but servicing those relationships is a, not only 
a concession to our job. You know, it's not only that we sort of we, we've sold, we've bought into the the story of work, but actually, um, it's it's really critically it's it's a really important important part of feeling human. Being part of groups makes us feel human. No wonder it is so good for us. And it's not just that. Up next, Bruce shares evidence that groups make a challenging hike look easier and how groups help rugby players perform better. But first, here's a quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show, and here's Bruce explaining how Oxford University rowers perform better when rowing with a group compared to rowing alone. Well, that's right. The, um, some wonderful work, work done by a, a, um, a professor, associate professor at, at Oxford University, where she worked with Robin Dunbar, who's like the famous 150 Friends guy. And uh, the, first, the first experiment they did was they did this experiment with Oxford University rowers where they... Um, they went along to their training sessions two successive Thursdays. The first Thursday, they got these rowers on rowing machines, got them to row for 10 minutes. You know, these rowers, rowers, you know, they, they row hard for 10 minutes. Uh, the next week, they went along and they got the rowing machines and they lined them up like a boat and they said, you need to row in time with each other. And, you know, the first component to consider is they did about the same amount of work so it was about the same amount of calories burned it wasn't like you know when they were doing it together they were doing it harder but the endorphin levels were twice as high when they did it together as when they did it alone there is something in human programming that when we are doing something alongside someone else or we feel like we've got someone doing it with us it seems to be protective now you know endorphin levels are painkillers so you know if you're rowing on a boat and you feel like you're supported around the people around you, you can row harder because you feel like we're all in this together. It's a painkiller. But she also looked at this experiment where she interrupted people on a college campus. And she said, said to them, can you put this backpack on and will you, uh, will you run up this hill? And before they ran up the hill, she asked them to estimate what they thought the gradient of the hill was. And she showed them some examples and so they could benchmark it. And if they were with someone, they estimated the hill was a lower gradient than if they were doing it on their own. And, you know, I, I, and th she did another experiment, actually, where she went to, I think, the Oxford University rugby team. And she got them to do this Exercise at the start where they were synchronized to, together. It might have been a clapping regime or something like that, or some exercise where they were doing something together. So activating those endorphins. Then she got them to do this six-minute training drill. And they finished it about th three to four percent quicker 
And these are fit people. Like they don't have like, and the, the, the three to four percent quicker if they'd done the the synchronized training regime together. So it's just these little pointers. The default setting for human beings is feeling synchronized to the people around us. That's incredible, right? I mean, sure, these are amateur rugby players, but they're still playing for Oxford University and a 2.5% increase in improvement just from doing a synchronised warm-up is is huge. It makes me wonder about all these solo sports, tennis, athletics, swimming, gymnastics, snooker and even darts. How much could these sports people improve by warming up with a group rather than warming up alone? Because a 2.5% difference at the top level, well, that's the difference between bronze and gold. We also heard how endorphin levels raise for teams that do activities in sync. But you don't even have to be part of a team to experience this. Just head to your local musical. According to Joe Delvin, a doctor at the University of College London, synchrony even occurs among strangers who find themselves making up a theatre audience. As Bruce shares in his book... The team monitored the heartbeats of people attending a West End musical and they found that those heartbeats sped up and slowed down in unison. The researchers said that usually a group of individuals will have each of their own heartbeats, rates and rhythms with little relationship to one another. But romantic couples or highly effective teammates will actually synchronise their hearts so they beat in time with each other. Now, this is astounding on its own, but Delvin's research goes on to show that you don't even need to be romantically engaged with someone to synchronise your heart rate. Just watching the same musical can do it. It probably means it's a really good place to take someone on a first date. But don't bank on that, I haven't found any evidence to back it up. Now, I'm coming to the end of my chat with Bruce, but before he went, I wanted to ask him something. See, we were chatting on a Friday afternoon, and on Saturday morning across the world, and especially in the UK, hundreds of thousands of people get together at their local park to take part in something called Park Run. It's a volunteer-led 5k run that millions of people have done around the world. I should mention that the volunteers don't actually take part in the run. Instead, they organise and direct people around the route and take the times as well. Thousands of people volunteer every Saturday morning too. Now, as a keen runner myself, I wanted to know, does Bruce think that doing a park run is a good way to build group cohesion? There's an interesting thing about park run. So park run is um, it, when you look into the well-being of the people who do it and the well-being who, of the people who volunteer for it. So I guess the people who do it are broadly individual. You know, turn up and you do a run. You might do it with friends. And the people who volunteer are just hanging with people. They're sort of, they're volunteers. They're, <coughs> they're self-organising. But, and the well-being and the health of the people who volunteer improves more than the people who do the running. That sense of feeling connected, I'm part of something. We're all in this together. You know, we're doing this for the good of people. We're doing this to make the world a better place. That seems to be as enriching as actually doing the activity. There's a really interesting body of research that looks at this. So um, quite often when we get people to do group exercise activities and we mention measure the health outcomes, we think, ah, this demonstrates how good exercise is. But then when you get um, when you say, OK, but hang on, are we definitely measuring the right thing here? How about if we measure these individuals getting the benefit of being in a group and maybe we don't get them to do any physical activity? So that's what Alex Haslam and some researchers did. They said, OK, let's do it. Firstly, let's get some 
old people to come along and do a weekly aerobics exercise. Then get a group of other people to come along and do a weekly art exercise or a, a debate exercise, a conversation exercise, a reminiscence exercise. And what they discovered was that the health uplifter was as strong for the people who'd been in the reminiscence exercise as it was for the people who did the, ex- the, um, the, the aerobics. And so it begs the question, hang on, have we been measuring the wrong thing? Is actually the magical benefit from being part of a group, from laughing with people, from interacting with people. And we've mistakenly thought it's these people turning up and doing aerobics. Oh, gee, Bruce is good, isn't he? Such a wealth of information. So let us recap quickly. Kids aren't less resilient today. Nope. There's evidence that suggests they're more resilient. But the conditions that help build resilience, like control, are being taken away from them with limits on their freedom and even things like schools starting earlier. And it's not just control. Groups, too, help build resilience. So much so that if you're trying to quit smoking, you should join a group first. And if you're warming up for a sporting event, make sure you do it with a partner. Now, if you are looking to join a lovely group of people, then consider joining my newsletter. There are over 1,500 of you on there already, and you're each receiving psychology-inspired tips to help you make smarter decisions. If you want to sign up, you can click the link in the show notes, or you can head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. Please also go and pick up a copy of Bruce's book. I've shared this before, but I've never taken so many notes whilst reading a book. It's an absolute treasure trove of insight, but it's still easy to read. He finds that great balance of showcasing evidence, but also telling a compelling story at the same time. I've left a link to his book in the show notes if you want to pick up a copy. That's all for today, folks. I'm your host, Phil Agnew. I spent hours putting together this episode. So if you want to learn what goes on behind the scenes and learn more of this stuff, then follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search Phil Agnew and you'll find me on there. Thank you all for listening to this episode. See you all next week.